Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. really happy today to be talking to Don McCarty. Now, you met my ex-wife, so that's how we kind of made this connection. Can you explain how that works? I should say maybe, first of all, welcome to Mindship Podcast. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> hey, thanks. I was so happy to be here. Yeah, I met I met your ex-wife on um, a project. We both were co-authors of a, of a book that just recently hit number one international bestsellers on Amazon. So uh, we got to know each other a little bit, and you know, well, here I am. After sharing hey, you my story with her, she she wanted to make sure that I got to, a chance to speak with you. Yeah, I'm sure we can have a really interesting conversation just before we hit record, talking about some of the stuff we wanted to cover in this episode. Maybe, though, we should start with the book. What's the name of the book, and what was your sort of role in it? Sure. The book is Transitioning Pain into Purpose, and it's what uh, the subtitle has, um, gosh, I can't even remember, something about the empowerment with H-E-R. Oh, uh, yes. It's a group of women that were, were talking about you know something that was painful and how we were able to transform that into what our purpose is today. So my purpose is only recently discovered in 2020 when I realized all of that pain that I went through and all of the that anguish and stuff from you know my abduction to the severe violence and abuse into like the church and the church being used as a way of control. So more or less kind of weaponized against mm-hmm. maybe in a cult-like setting, you know, type of behavior or type of parenting even. And then just, you know, trauma followed me for the rest of my life until I started working on it and finding my biological father. So transitioned quite a bit in the last 10 years. And so in this book, it was really significant to the point where I was actually able to write something that I hadn't talked about before. So it was a completely new topic and it's called The Fat Imposter. And, you know, just going through trauma and stuff like that, your body does keep the score. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I started thinking, yeah, I started putting on weight and I decided oh, I'm just going to hold off doing anything out there in public for a little while till I get this under control. Next thing I know, I'm hiding more and more and more and I'm, I'm not on cameras. I'm the one holding the camera, so I'm not ha- I don't have to be in the pictures. Uh-huh. It just kind of, before I knew it was 10 years, I couldn't believe that. And so 2020, I decided just go, co- someone asked me to, co- to host a show, a podcast and I wanted to share my story about my father and our reunification, and I decided if I sit here silently, then nothing changes. Uh. So I made myself do it, and I jumped into doing video webcasts and had no idea what I was doing or how I was doing <laughs> it. Everybody liked how I did it, so <laughs> keep going. I kept going and going, and so now I'm, I've. I built my own uh, cybersecurity company, which is part of the purpose, and we can get into that, you know, a little bit later. But it just kind of led me into being able to write about a very buried story that you don't. I don't. It's not top of mind. It's not something I think about all the time. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'm not done. Is not that? Yeah, that's not your identity. It's not who I am. So mm-hmm. this imposter crept up on me. 
And that is the imposter, not me. So this imposter syndrome that we often feel, especially women, uh, we get this imposter type syndrome where we think that we're not good enough, we're not worthy, we shouldn't be here, I shouldn't be out in public because of the way I look, the way I dress, the way I am, who I am, what I do, who I love, all of those things, we tend to just kind of hide, that we're hiding behind a facade, and that facade is the imposter. Mm-hmm. So- I'm very familiar with those concepts, but I experienced them both as a pastor and then as a teacher, I felt like you said, I wasn't good enough. I was a fraud and a phony, and it was only a matter of time until they found me out. And I did some research on that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing, isn't it? I mean, you can stand up in front of a group of people, whether you're a preacher or a teacher or whatever you're doing on a, on a video camera, yeah, you feel this. It can be very crippling and debilitating, can it? So yeah, it's a real problem. Yeah, it definitely can be. And if you're not addressing it, then it's controlling you. Ah. you know, you're not even realizing that you're being controlled by something because you're not paying attention or you haven't really gotten to the point where you can move past that by healing through it. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we don't go through that. So it's, it's not a, it's an individual progress. It's not something that everybody can measure against someone else. It's when you get to that point where you say, okay, I need to break free of this. I've broken free of all this other trauma. Why am I still being held back? Why am I not out there on stages speaking? Why am I not on videos more often? And a lot of it was because I was thinking nobody would take me seriously because of the way I looked. Mm. And that was a that was something I really had to say, snap out of it, girl. Yeah, that's <laughs> a big one. Yeah, it's huge. By allowing that to hold me back, I'm doing a disservice to the world and keeping people safer online. And I'm doing it the service to myself. It's true. And I, last year, I went through that book, The Body Keeps the Score. You mentioned that by Vanderkolk. I mean, that was another eye-opening thing and part of my journey of de- reconstructing, you know, of the back end of religious trauma syndrome and all those kind of things. You're absolutely right, because I remember him talking about they don't know necessarily the extent to which our physical bodies manifest the trauma, but it will if you bury it and suppress it. It's going to come out in some form, fashion, or another, isn't it? There is definitely a causal link, I think, between trauma that we've experienced in the past and our physical bodies, isn't there? I believe so. Yes, definitely. And I think with the types of religions that we may have grown up in as well, being so uh, demanding and very institutionalized and very um, strict, yeah, very controlling. You get conditioned to not do certain things, not say certain things, don't act certain ways. You're supposed to look like this and dress like that, wear your hair like this. Don't wear too many, you know, too many earrings. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Don't Purity culture. Say that. Yeah, there's so much demand on who we are individually that the religion kind of takes over and controls and you know, can seek in so deep. It's true. To deconstruct. I remember Dr. Marlene Winnell, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with her work on religious trauma syndrome, but she coined that phrase and she's written and spoken on that for years and years now. But she said one time in a podcast I had, which she was on my show, she said something to the effect that religion is all pervasive. It affects every single area and aspect of our lives. It totally does. And when she said that, it really hit me. I thought, my God, it's true. It affects relationships, our sexuality, our physical na- makeup, you know, our emotional state. Every area and aspect of our life is somehow touched by religion, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And it, it's taken me a long time. And my kids actually are the ones that kind of helped me transition through that a little bit because 
I left the church, the Mormon church, the mainstream LDS church, uh, when I was about 15 because I was being threatened to be excommunicated. And there was all kinds of stuff going on. And, you know, my trauma was out. I was, I was screaming out for help, but nobody was on my side at all. Mm. But not the friends that I thought were my friends, they were not my friends. And then even the leaders in the church, they, nobody would believe my story. Like I, I come right out and say, my parent, you know, these two kidnapped me and nobody wanted to believe that. They Mm. believed that because of the adoption everything was legal, it just couldn't even possibly be true. So I had to be making up this really heinous story. And so I was the liar of the Mm -hmm. Lord. And people hated me for even saying things. Like they told me I was despicable. And I mean, just really, I'm 15 years old. Exactly. You can't process that on top of what you've experienced. Now they're, they're treating you like dirt. So it wasn't doing everything that I was supposed to be doing. I wasn't hanging around with the right kind of people. I was hanging around people that were into drugs and drinking. And I did experiment a little bit, but it wasn't really, I, I already felt like I was living in an altered state of consciousness already with mm. the identity crisis from the abduction into this world that I didn't acclimate well to. Mm. So I'm already having issues with just maintaining reality, you know, as far as I could control it. So what I felt was realistic. So doing drugs and that kind of stuff made me feel, you know, I I just couldn't stand it. But these people, they might have been doing things they shouldn't have been doing. And that's not for me to judge, but they didn't want to be judged. So Mm -hmm. they didn't judge me. Yeah, it's probably the safest place. (laughs) Yeah. felt safe among people that didn't judge me. The outcasts or the rejects. (laughs) Now I'm hanging out with the wrong kind of people and, you know, the rumors spread like. Oh, yeah that watch out doing nefarious things and then you know one rumor led to another rumor and then before you knew it they had two rumors that was was partially true but because they didn't have the right sequence mm-hmm. of events they had no idea what they were talking about right and they were going to excommunicate me for that so you got out well i think we might be getting ahead of ourselves because you've made allusions to you said an abduction but no one knows what that is what happened maybe we can go back and have you tell the story of what set that whole thing up so when i was when I was real small, my I was about two or three years old. My mother, you know, became estranged, and she left my me with my biological father. And on and off, we had seen her, you know, visit her in her apartment. But I always went home with my father. Mm-hmm. And then one day, she was gone. She just just split. We had no idea where she was, and that's the last I saw of her. So it was it had been a while since I had seen her. I was almost five years old. And her and her new husband, they had just got married just a few weeks before this. And they decided once he found out that she had a daughter and he had a daughter, he wanted to put together this family. So they decided to come down and to Hollywood, California and abduct me from my biological father. Not talk to him, not say, hey, you know, I'm her mom and I yeah, want visitation. Yeah. She didn't say anything. She didn't have any communication with him whatsoever. She made up some stories that made her husband believe that he was rescuing me. So for him, I can understand to some extent. Right. He was being manipulated. But yeah. bring in law enforcement. You don't go do stuff like that on your own. Yeah. It's like vigilante justice, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Just so sail in there and take a kid. Her champion, but not mine. <laughs> right. Yeah. He was doing the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing right. for the right reasons, as it were. Right. And you don't abduct a child. That's illegal in all 50 states. Yeah. There is that. He should have questioned that at least. Wait a minute. Yeah. Why don't we call the police then? And he even wrote, 
we didn't want to involve law enforcement or the court systems because it uh, take months. He even said, he wrote that. So yeah, it was a very traumatic experience for me. When she came up to the stairwell, when I was running up to my babysitter's house, she was calling my name, but I didn't quite recognize who it was at first. So that's that says something about how estranged we actually mm-hmm. I don't know, she, yeah. you know, look different or, or whatever. But for a young child, when somebody's gone and she was in and out for so much that she wasn't really my primary caretaker at all. She never was. Mm. My dad was always my primary safe parent and um, she was not as um, involved as a parent. So when she called my name, I didn't turn around and, and recognize her. And she called me again. I turned around and I stopped and I'm looking at her and I'm like, I, I'm like, who are you? Nah, who is this person? And she had to say, Don, it's your mom. <laughs> and then wow. I realized, oh, oh, okay. I ran out to her thinking, okay, yeah, so I'll go and greet her. And as soon as I got there, she grabbed me and ran for the car. And she starts shoving me into the front seat of this vehicle next to this strange man. And she's trying to push me closer to him. And she's getting in behind me. And she's like, this is your new daddy. And she's all excited about it. And I'm thinking, no, and I'm pushing away. I'm like, no, that's not my daddy. And I was kind of traumatized just at that moment. Oh, yeah, you would be. There, you know, they took me to a houseboat. We stayed on a houseboat for a week off the coast of San Diego so that the investigation for this missing child would die down where they felt comfortable to move me to an airport. So you got the FBI, you got law enforcement, you got volunteers, whoever is involved with a missing child out looking for me. You've got a babysitter who feels riddled with guilt because it was her watch. When I disappeared. Literally on her doorstep. Yeah, I was almost to her door, like almost ready to knock when I stopped. So she didn't even know that I had gone and I was playing in the courtyard. We lived in this U-shaped apartment complex and I was allowed to play in the courtyard. And she didn't even know that I was gone. And I don't know how long it took her to realize I was gone. So she's she's riddled with guilt. My dad's singing, I'm dead in a ditch somewhere. We got all the neighbors and... The, the whole community is looking for this child, and this child is on a houseboat off to of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And then they put me on a plane and fly me to Colorado, and my world just d- dissolved. And then this new one existed, and I didn't have it act, you know, that. Yeah, no transition. Into that. What were they telling you during that week that you were on the houseboat? What were they? What was their explanation for why they had done this? They didn't really say a lot, and some of the things that they said were. Like, do you want to go for an airplane ride? Or do you want to go for a month? Do you want, you know, something? This will be fun. Yeah, it might sound fun. But she kept saying, this is your new daddy. And I think I tuned out because mm-hmm. she kept saying things like, yeah, we just sit there and you would just play. And it's like, because it was the only thing I could focus on probably. You know, like everything mm-hmm. was too much. Yeah, it was just overwhelming. Was, you know, something I could control. So, wow. and, you know, and I remember the phone. I remember her, the doll that she gave me and I was never into dolls. So I didn't really care about the doll. I remember some of that, but I don't remember it the same way she remembers it. So, mm-hmm. which is, that's always the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they start this whole new life. And again, what, what, were they were just like dropping you in and here's your whole new life and start all over. I got dragged and dropped right into this new world that I didn't know. I didn't know the players. I didn't know the environment. I didn't, mm. try, I didn't know anything. So I have a new daddy. I have a new stepsister who's six years older than me and hates me because she didn't want her father marrying my mother to begin with. Right. And now she finds out that she also has a daughter. Uh. 
it was instant dislike. And then as soon as she heard me calling her dad, daddy, because I was forced to, she had it in for me. Right. She, for the next eight years, she violently abused me. God, she made your life a living hell. Yeah. She'd bash my head into the ground. I don't know if I had concussions or not. Nobody took me to the doctor. Nobody had me checked for any injuries at any time. I am amazed that I lived through yeah. that. And then though, when she was a senior in high school and I was in sixth grade, she strangled me to death. Good God. Nearly died because I locked her out of the house as a joke. I mean, I wouldn't have left her locked out of the house, but I yeah. she felt better. And here you here I blame the me. Uh-huh. Great victim mentality. It's my fault because I locked her out of the house and I should have known better. But with someone like her, I really should have known better. I mean, seriously. Yeah. She was a psycho. Joke on people like that. It's dangerous. Yeah. So, but no one didn't no one found out she was abusing you? Is that what happened? Nobody believed me. Good she God. Hush, and they didn't see her do it until the day she strangled me. And the reason why I didn't die is because our parents pulled into the driveway and it snapped her out of it. Because I truly believe I've seen her face morph. I've seen the transition and the changing. I have mm. pictures of it. I can, I mean, it's really yeah. kind of creepy. But the I red mist just descended. Her. Yeah. Yeah. She's my demon, is what I called her. God. She was my demon. And I, when I knew she was mad, I could, I saw her face just change and her eyes and, oh, it's scary. But when they drove into the driveway, she snapped out of that and she dropped me. And when she dropped me and I hit the ground, I think that's when I took that life saving breath because I was, it was black lights out. Yeah. You were I, choked I out. Seeing that circle closing and going completely black. God. And so that's crazy. So on top of the trauma of having to move and everything. Now you've got this incredibly abusive stepsister. Sound like a complete psycho. That's what, did they find out then when, when they came in that she'd been doing this to you? No. The, the, the worst that happened was when they finally got me to come home, they made me sit next to her at the kitchen table. And they didn't... Her dad, my stepfather, just put a piece of paper in front of both of us and said, I don't want to hear a word. Just write it down. And I'm what happened? In my mind, going, what the hell? This girl just tried to kill me. And I've got to write down what he wanted you to write down what happened. Yeah. Like, I'm on each side of the story here. I found out later, I didn't know at the time. I found out later that they actually saw it happen. Good God. And I'm supposed to write it down and tell them what happened, but I didn't know that they saw it. So they witnessed part of it. Mm-hmm. So they saw her choking you out and they still what? They still believed her? They, they did not punish her at all. And then she was getting ready to go to Rick's College, which was now BYU-Idaho. So mm-hmm. you know, Mormons have the BYU college, universities. So she was getting ready to go to Rick's, and they did everything they could to get her off and settled into college. And at that point, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm finally safe. Now, my mom was also abusive towards me, uh. just not as bad as she was. You know, she was she was abusive as far as punishment, a lot right. of and smacking and beating my butt, breaking wooden spoons and brushes over my butt. The belt buckle one time because she grabbed the wrong end and she just started hurling that thing at me. And yeah, she was not, she, I was an inconvenience with her and disruptive to her life, which is why she was estranged. Like, exactly. No, In the first place, now. she never wanted you anyway. Right. But she was only like, listening to her. a daughter, but she doesn't want the responsibility. Yeah, the idea of it. But there was it was under the pressure of her new husband that he thought we'll have this lovely, loving family. 
it couldn't have been anything further from the truth. So, you know, she can't reveal this whole thing. So she had to keep that a secret inside as well. So when I was eight years old, they finally decided they were going to join a church. We hadn't been a member of the church yet, any church at that point. And they decided they wanted to join a church and they were looking at a couple of them. But in order to join a church and have me baptized, then they would have to get permission from my father. Ah, now the fly in the ointment. So they decide to have him adopt me and they lied on the affidavit so that they could make that happen. They backdated and my mom put in there in writing saying that my father had not been involved in my life and that I they haven't seen or heard from him in years. Well, they backdated it a year past the date that they abducted me. Uh-huh. So we already know that that's, that year is not the right year. So that's an inaccurate affidavit. And because she had someone ready to stand up and be a dad, the family, the DCS started said that, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and weigh the investigation. It's a mandatory state statute investigation yeah. that they're required by law to do, to conduct to find the biological parent and then ask them to surrender or, you know, not surrender. Yeah, give the permission. Give yeah. Parental rights. And they didn't even bother. I could have been reunited with him when I was eight instead of 48. I was going to ask you, but what about all the investigations when you were abducted? I mean, surely that didn't die down forever. I mean, what was your what was your biological father thinking had happened to you? He must have thought, like you said, you were dead in the ditch. You'd been abducted and murdered or whatever, and that was the end of it. Yeah, he thought I was got lost or wandered off or someone took me or something, and I was dead somewhere because, you know, who would just take yeah. it? Now, I was pretty adventurous as a child. I was very independent and very adventurous, and I was not afraid to go places. And I, I enrolled myself in daycare when I was two. I still wear diapers. Okay. My mom was having a hard time. She would be outside cleaning up the pool area because they were managers of the mm-hmm. We'd, they would collect rent, so I would mimic what they were doing. I'd be knocking on doors, asking for cookies and candy. They're asking for money. Right. You know, so when she was doing that, I got bored with that after a while, I suppose, and I just heard kids playing around the corner. So I went over there, and I started playing every day when these kids were outside. Oh, and right. I Can I just so join in your play? Uh, oh, my gosh. Well, she knows where to come and go, but we really don't know who she is. And back oh, then, oh my God. This is like the 70s, early, yeah. early, no, probably just around 1970-ish, somewhere right. you know, today, you'd lose your kids. You'd think so. Yeah. Today would be a really, you know, that would be something that you could get in trouble for neglect and, and whatnot. Yeah. Disappearing. So because I was so adventurous, that's probably one of the other things my mom did not like about being a mother was having to keep track of this little thing mm-hmm. all the time. So I was a lot of work. I don't have a problem admitting that I know that, but, you know, after this investigation was going on and nobody really knowing what happened because the babysitter hadn't seen me since I was outside playing. So she didn't even know a direction. She wasn't looking out a window. So there was nothing. Mm-hmm. I saw nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. No leads at all. Yeah. Nobody else, the residents in the apartment complex saw anything either. And I think it was really early in the morning. So people mm-hmm. were getting ready for work. I'd already left for work. So, right, so no eyewitnesses, nothing. Hard to say, right? Yeah. No leads, nothing. The investigation, about three weeks afterwards, we were already in, in Colorado, the Boulder police finally showed up on our doorstep. Mm-hmm. And they were asking, do you have you know, dog? And my mom said, yeah, and she's my daughter. Ah. And they were like, well, that's fine, except that you could have let her father know because there was a full investigation 
And a lot of people spent a lot of time looking for your daughter. And you've had her this whole time. And said so nothing. That she should have been in trouble right then and there. That should have been the end of it. And the, the reason why she wasn't is because he didn't, my dad didn't press charges. There was no court mm. orders because they weren't officially married. They were, there's common law or something. I don't know a lot about that, but they weren't officially married. Right. So on the so, books, they weren't married. So there was no court proceedings that said you have custody or she has custody. They're both on my birth certificate, mm-hmm. but there was no court order. So she just felt like, you know, I was hers. And I'm just going to take her. It's like she had the final say and she could also decide who my father was going to be. She could just replace him. Right. So he finally found out. He tried to make contact. He came up. He tried to reason and get visitation. Every time she slammed the door in his face or hung up the phone. And they told me a whole bunch of other cockamamie stories that weren't true at all. Part Maybe partially true, but like missing big mm-hmm. pieces out of what was really true. So when I had asked her over time, it's like, does he ever try to call me? Has he sent me a birthday card or any presents? Did he ever try? And she would tell me, no, he doesn't give a shit about you. Mm-hmm. Basically, he was telling me that he doesn't, he never even wanted to continue being a father. And she made me hate it. She turned you against him then. She tried to, yeah, she turned me against him. Now I had this, I had this inside internal gut feeling though, where I felt bonded and connected to him and that this can't be true. Right. You never believed it. Kid, who are you going to, you're going to believe a person that's supposed to guard and protect you. Classic gaslighting, isn't it? You're questioning your own reality. Really questioning my own reality. So she definitely tried to turn me against him and she has all along right. anytime i bring him up she's like that's not your father he's not a father your father is this person mm. and i i had to by force or by you know or else call him dad which i struggled with my entire childhood this man always felt like a phony mm-hmm and as much as he was there, he put a roof over my head. And people say, well, you had a father. You had a roof over your head. You had clothes. Yeah. What's the problem? And it's like, you don't get it. There's there's an emotional connection to someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's not him. So, yeah, he might be acting as if he's a father, but he's not my father. Right. He's somebody else's father. And that somebody else hated me calling her father. Huh. You know, dad. So it was very, very... Um, confusing, emotional, the gaslighting, and then the, throw the religion in on top of that. And you get this baptism being official now because he now ado- adopted me and yeah. I'm legally his child and the birth certificate now takes off my biological dad's name and puts his on it. Right. So all the hurdles were out of the way. You can now yeah. become a good standing member of the LDS church. Yes. And so the church says by law, and they don't even know, they have no idea that any of this happened. So you've been abducted and everything. Yeah, because their birth, their proof was that. Oh, I see. Mother, right. It's all on the paperwork. It's all on the paperwork. They right. no, they have no evidence to believe that I was abducted uh-huh. because they took care of all that before the baptism. Right. So they whitewashed the past basically yeah. and made it all go away. Yeah, but I suppose that when you're baptized into the LDS religion, then all your sins are forgiven. So. It didn't matter because now it's not even on the records. So it's not even there. And then a year later, we go to the temple because they now want to get married in the temple Mm -hmm. and they want to have me sealed to them. So we go to Salt Lake City 
And I sit there waiting for them to come and get me. I'm in, down in the nursery room while they're up doing their ceremony stuff. They have to go through their endowments and, and, then, and then be sealed. So it was an all-day event. And they forgot about them in the sealing room. And were, they were closing the temple. Oh. They finally found them. We'd been in there all day with no food. So I'm in the nursery with no food and no contact with my parents in this temple for almost eight hours. And I'd had people that were coming and going and they would, I was in there with a bunch of babies, you know, toddlers. And here I am eight years old. And what am I doing here? Yeah, I was playing with them. At least I had entertainment, but they felt hard for me. So some of the moms gave me cookies or, you know, so I had something. Yeah, but not real food, is it? Yeah, no meals. And so that that whole temple ceremony took place when I had no idea what that meant. I was only eight when I was baptized. I'm almost nine now. When I looked at the baptismal font, I was like, yeah, I'm getting in that. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get a swimming pool. For any of the missionary lessons or yeah. anything like that. I, I didn't have a testimony at eight years old. I didn't know what I was agreeing to. I just mm-hmm. wanted to get in that dang tub. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the most epic bathtub I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, something was fun about it. Something was fun. <laughs> so, um, yeah, now I'm sealed to my mom and her new husband, but I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm I'm sealed to this man for all time and eternity. And I didn't discover that and didn't come to that realization until last year. Last year, I finally said, oh my God, no, no, that's not true. It actually is in 2018 when I started putting these thoughts together. Yeah, my putting the pieces together. Father, yeah, I reunited with him in 2016. I finally found him. And I found out that I have three brothers, and they were all looking for me. Uh-huh. They knew who I was. He he told them who I was, and she's out there somewhere. But they didn't know what my name had been changed to. They didn't know where we were living or anything like that. So when I found out I had brothers that were actually my brothers and that actually loved me and would not beat and abuse me and try and strangle me. I mean, yeah. they would have had fights, but nothing. Nothing like that. So I was angry. I was so angry when I found out all of this, what I missed. my. Yeah, you could have had a really great life. Yeah, it was It was definitely a fire hydrant just, just ate yeah. right at my chest and so many emotions that I didn't know how to handle it. So I had to go and get counseling just to help process and unravel the life that I had. And I had to learn the tools to quit what doesn't belong to me aside and what I need to work on and focus is what I, all I concentrated on. So it took a lot of work. And then I had two years with him before he passed away. Mm. And I think I got face to face time with him about three weeks or so out of that two years where we were actually together in the same room and I was better again. So, you know, that, that anger kept, you know, we all kept spinning for Mm -hmm. me. So it's like every time I turn around something else, and I find out something else, you know, and then I'm like, oh, I'm okay. And then I find out something else and now I'm mad again. And then I'd work through that and I'd be okay. And then I'd find out something else. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of been this roller coaster ride since 2016. And then in 2020 is when I finally land my feet and said, okay, here's what I'm here to do. I'm here. All of that shit, excuse my language, happened mm-hmm. for a reason. Yeah. And it didn't happen to me. It actually happened for me because I'm in a position that is kind of ironic where I I had a childhood that was not secure. 
I was never, I never felt secure as a child. Yeah, absolutely. And so when I go into criminal justice and I want to build a career in criminal justice and I realized I'd have to be around criminals, I didn't want to be around someone like that. To imagine, yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that. No, 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 no. So I'm like, well, that's not going to work. So I went back into computers, which I had started when my youngest son was right after he was born. And I kind of got into cybersecurity. Mm. So if you think about that path, it's a lot of it has to do with security. Keeping people safe. I mean, they're protecting someone or something, and oftentimes it's me. Right. When you yeah. didn't feel safe and you weren't secure. Yeah. And then when I, I, I always have this, I have the an, an ability, and I think people that go through things like what I've been through, you have the hypervigilance and an innate ability to read people. Like, I didn't know what body language was. But I know body language. Yeah. You couldn't define it necessarily, but you knew what it was, yeah, from term, experience. I have the correct things, but I know no. what someone's like. I can tell your micro expressions, and mm-hmm. I, I learned how to run when I need to run. It's kind of like that fight or flight. So you know, becoming a forensic document examiner, being able to authenticate who someone is, understanding identity, and trying to change my name to something I controlled. I decided I chose this name. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I've had so many name changes now. I wanted one that I decided to screw all of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be me. Yeah. So, yeah. But then I found my dad. I'm like, now I got to change it again because I wanted to go back to my birth name. Right. So that's my, that's who I am now. Don Andrea McCarty is my birth name. And the rest of it, I want to just have it like that. Yeah. That's you. When we come back from the break in this chat with Dawn, I want to get into how she has survived all this unbelievable trauma that she's lived through, and the story isn't over yet. We're going to talk about how she's rebuilt her life, and her purpose really is to provide security. She's going to talk about her business that she started, as well as a couple of books she's been writing, as well as an experience when she was a young girl with a sexual predator. So you can see why she has such a heart for helping people. So that's all coming up in the last half. But before we do that, I wanted to mention what's coming up here on the next few episodes of Mindship Podcast. I've got an unbelievable conversation that I had with Emily Page. She is a survivor of Doug Wilson's Logos School. She was a victim of a sexual predator. Speaking of sexual predators, is another one hiding in plain sight in a Christian school in Idaho. This is all affiliated, of course, with Doug Wilson that I've done so much work on. And she has just an absolutely unbelievable story surviving the sexual abuser for years. This guy basically controlled and dominated her life. This story is just absolutely horrific. And yet there is a survival story like Dawn's in this thing as well. So we've got Emily Page coming up. And then I talked to Charles Utter the other day. He's got a really amazing book called Roman Collar Crime. And it's all a true story about a priest that he knew personally in the very small town that he grew up in. So again, that's another story of abuse within the Catholic Church this time. And so that's coming up with Charles Utter. And then finally, I've got a couple of projects in the pipeline. We've got a conversation booked in a couple of weeks with a guy named Jared Stacy. He is a doctoral student up in Aberdeen, Scotland, and his specialty is researching the Christian right and what's going on in American politics and religion today. So that's right up my alley. I'm looking forward to talking to Jared. And then the other one is I've been on David Johnson's Skeptics and Seekers podcast. He does a special one called Sunday Sermon every so often. And I've been on there a few times before. 
and I hooked him up with my good friend Gary Hudson. If you remember, he was just on my show maybe a couple of months ago talking about his book, Surrender to Reason. And Gary and I and David broke down a John MacArthur sermon called Deconstructing Christians Part 1. And if you're a deconstructing Christian or an ex-evangelical ex-Christian, you're going to enjoy this series. We really take John MacArthur to task for a lot of the bogus statements that he made. But one of the requests that I made to David and Gary was, someone wrote me a question not long ago asking, why does Jesus always get such a free pass every time Christians talk about deconstructing? Seems like Paul gets taken to task, but Jesus always gets off the hook. We're going to take a real close look at this question, as well as the question, could Jesus have been a cult leader, which is kind of a, an associated question along with that. Was he such a great teacher? Was he really a wise religious guru? I think we're going to find that he's going to come up wanting a little bit here. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with David and Gary again. We're going to do this project on my show this time. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions about this episode or any other one, please send me a DM. You can follow me on Twitter at MindShift2018, or you can send me an email through the public MindShift Podcast Facebook page. And as always, if you want to support the show on Patreon, the link to that is always in the show notes. You can also look up patreon.com forward slash MindShift Podcast and support the show. Let's get on back into the second half of this chat with Don McCarty as she continues her absolutely unbelievable story of abduction, abuse, and surviving a cult. It's an unbelievable story because I was just thinking as I was listening to you talking, you know, so many people that would have been destroyed by those experiences and, and people have been, you know, how do you come out the back end? Because, I mean, you were mentioning, okay, you talked to my ex-wife and obviously there's something there because, you know, when, when we were still married, we went through a horrific period where I think it was about two or three years, there were 12 people that died in that two or three year period, we're talking not just people who are on the fringes, we're talking about family members and very close, you know, people that we're super close to, good close friends, 12 people died in that span of a couple of years. You know, and coming through that, you know, it was like, how do you cope with all that? Because a lot of people would just be destroyed by these experiences. And how were you not just completely destroyed? You could be on the streets on drugs or put a gun in your mouth and end it all. I wonder that myself sometimes. And I think, well, I think when I started life, I was so, you know, full of life and very independent and not afraid of anything. I was not afraid of anything. I would have done anything and gone anywhere. No inhibitions as far as that goes. I had I had that confidence. And this was a hiccup. A lot of this stuff really kind of suffocated some of that out of me and changed how I respond. And so I have, as, as time went on, I had issues just setting boundaries or, you know, just dealing with conflict. And if someone was angry around me, Oh my gosh, I just, I couldn't even handle someone being angry. I didn't know what to do. I closed up mm. and I almost couldn't move. Yeah, I couldn't function. They just shut yeah, down. I couldn't function very well. So it was really difficult to learn all of that as an adult. A new coping strategy. Yeah. yeah. So I, we joke about it, but it's really true. My kids have watched me grow up in the last 10 years. <laughs> Watching mom grow up. Watching mom grow up and, and being able to recognize and even just own some of the areas where, you know, I've made, I made really drastic mistakes, but it's all part of that process. Like what other choices did I have? Mm -hmm. Just knowing and acknowledging, acknowledging them now is what matters most. So I've had to do a lot of um, cleanup, a lot of damage control mm. just with my kids, because when you study 
epigenetics, like I've been doing in the last couple of years, learning about this trauma, where does it stem from? Um, I realized that my mom had her own set of trauma and she wasn't loved very well by her own mother. Mm-hmm. And so the, the this kind of wheels turns from generation to generation. So I can go back five generations and see trauma from the mother to mother to mother to mother to me. So with that in mind and me doing damage control, I'm hopefully resetting the wheel so that my kids don't have to take that forward. Yeah, you're not passing that along. I only have sons. So, you know, I, I don't know if that makes a huge difference because, you know, but DNA does does travel through us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is something to look at for sure. Well, how much of this too, in your work now helping other people, how much of that comes into play? Because I found my girlfriend says to me, you know, that she, she was not raised religious at all. I say, you're actually quite lucky. You know, I was raised in a fundamentalist church and all the rest of it in a cult, really. But she says, I can see that you doing your podcast and talking to people and all that. That's part of your own therapy. That's that's helping me to heal from the crap that I went through, you know, growing up in fundamentalism and being a part of that for most of my adult life. Do you find that that's the case as well for you? Absolutely. Yeah, it's. I think when I started opening up and talking is when I started realizing more and more and learning about myself and learning that there's other people out there that are like me that mm-hmm. have gone through so many things that are similar to what I've gone through. We all have the same story with just different events, right? Mm. So and the trauma is the story, and then there's events that cause the trauma. So I realized that as I was saying how I was always trying to protect someone, you know, either someone or something, and even myself, my company name is called Securing Everything. And I thought, well, you know, someone helped me come up with that name, but what it really means is I didn't have a secure childhood, and I would have had anything to have a secure childhood. So having a secure childhood for me is everything as a child. Every child needs a secure childhood. It's everything for their progress to become an adult, for their abilities to be sound and safe and and to be the best person that they can possibly be. It is everything to a child to have that security. So my company's name is Securing Everything. It's all about keeping kids safe and keeping people safe, keeping parents aligned with keeping their children safe. And, you know, today I look out at the world and I see parents with their noses in a phone and what's going on with their kids? Well, their noses are in a phone too. So it's like, okay, we have to have some kind of wake up call here because kids can't be raised by a phone and it's not a pacifier. It's not a, you know, babysitter and the world is moving fast. I'll give you this. So let me, let me, let me change what I'm trying to say here because we all are in, in inundated with technology. Kids mm-hmm. are born into it, so they're kind of like in a, a, there's a little bit of an entitlement there, but we're all just mesmerized by it because there's so much technology going on around us that we're kind of being pulled into it. It's not our fault that our noses are stuck in the phone. It's by design that our noses are stuck in yeah, the phone. We're addicted to our phones for sure. We can't get away from them. Yeah, we, we need to see the latest, the greatest. I mean, it's from advertisements that want you to buy something to something hilarious that makes you laugh. Mm-hmm. It's Everything is kind of going on there. So we're all being drawn into this technology. And if you watch the movie called WALL-E, have you ever mm-hmm. that? Yeah. And you see everybody on their carts and all they can see is what's in front of them. Yeah. And I kind of feel like that's where we're at. 
that that's all we can see is what's on our screen. And yeah. so I try and I come in and I help parents learn how to protect their kids. And a lot of times they say, no, my kids know more about technology than I do. So what do I need to protect them? Mm. If, they, if they're smarter than me, I can't do it. And I say, well, you know, your kids are technology experts. That's definitely true. But they are not security experts. Yeah, so they, they might know technology, but yeah, they're born with a phone in their hand practically. Secure them if you don't know how to secure them. Yeah, what that's content they're, yeah, what are they looking at? Yeah, yeah. so that's kind of where, where I'm at there. And it, I go beyond that because I've been in cybersecurity. There's a lot of areas that I could be in. And I, I tend to focus on families. Mm-hmm. And I can focus on small businesses as well because most of the time small business people have families. So it yeah. kind of works. But they have a different need. So maybe they need to protect their home network, but also need some help protecting their their office, you know, their home office or their workplace. So I don't treat train um, industry experts though. There's plenty of trainings out there for that. Yeah. I don't need to I don't need to add a, another you, one. Yeah. You found a niche basically, yeah. Found an area and it's so important to me. And it has so much to do with my passion and, and helping to transition. So when I said earlier how this stuff happened to me or that happened for me and not to me, uh-huh. it's because my purpose was needed today. It hasn't been needed up until we had the internet. It hasn't been needed until we had so many things going on. And 2020 came and that's when we had this big transition. More people started working from home, working mm-hmm. schooling from home. And then we have a 92% increase in calls to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. And all of this stuff is happening because why? Because you're home and you're seeing it. Yeah, you know, it was all there. All Yeah, it was there all along. Wasn't it? Yeah. But now you're home. Suddenly it's like, my God, this is all going on. I had no idea. Right. So now I know that's why I'm here today is to help parents and families come back together as a cohesive unit that can collaborate and work together to secure their home environments. I want parents to include their children in the security plan. We can't do this authoritative type parenting anymore because kids have Uncle Google and Aunt Alexa. Mm-hmm. They'll go get it from someone else. Yeah, but it's they're going to find it. Child predator. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the child predator really is scary because the FBI says there's 500,000 online predators at any given time at any day. God. And that's in the United States. So in that the is frightening. States, there's 74 million children according to the 2020 census. So if you take 74 million children, divide that by 500,000, each online predator only needs to make contact with 148 kids each to reach out. No, not that many. That's happening. But 148, we talk to 148 people online all the time. Oh, yeah. That's an easily doable thing. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. Yeah. That's scary. So I'm I'm here to help secure that and help keep kids safe and keep kids home. Right. They're not being abducted. They're not being lured out into a dangerous situation with a child predator and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow all your experiences growing up and everything as traumatic as they were have somehow... I don't want to say prepared you, but in a way, they've yeah. gi- they've kind of given you your life's mission, haven't they? I mean, we're not going to say, oh, it was it was it was wonderful. I'm so glad you experienced those things, Don. You know, we're not glad, but yet on the same thing, you turned it into a positive now to where you're helping people. Yeah, it's given me a place of that authority, that being that insider. I can totally understand. I've had my own groomer 
my own child predator mm. sitting at my dinner table with me, not on the computer. So it's a little different, but it's not that different. Yeah, it's same dynamics. That's the same thing that people online want to do is they want to be able to get into your home or get your kid out of their home. Mm-hmm. My predator was sitting at our dinner table, playing on our piano, singing songs. My mom loved this guy. He totally enamored her. Now, there's the thing, too, is this guy did not groom me. He groomed my parents. Exactly. It was, it was, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's often how it happens. And a trusted friend, family member, someone in authority, a pastor, yeah, a priest, a teacher. To, yep. It's who are you talking to that wants access to your kids? Yeah, why does this person want access to your family? Yeah, and they're very clear. They'll say anything that they think you want to hear to gain access. Yeah, yeah. I've had so experience with people like that as well. Yeah, this guy came in on the preface of being interested in the church because my stepfather, Mo, is always the missionary, right? Mm-hmm. He's the missionary leader forever. And always looking for opportunities to bring someone else into the fold. So when this guy, you know, and this is what the predators do, they will adapt to whoever you want them to be. Oh, yeah. They're like chameleons. So they, he, this guy pretended like he was interested in the church. And they first met at the airport where the airplane was, was at, where my stepfather was a chief pilot. Uh-huh. He uh, he would go out there and he'd bring me to wash and wax the plane. Anytime that the corporate leaders were going to, uh, going somewhere, he was going to fly them. He wanted to make sure the plane was spotless and clean. Right. So he'd hire me to come and clean and wax the plane on the outside. So, of course, this guy hanging around the airport discovers me out there. And she's mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm not a bikini, but a baby. I wasn't allowed to wear a bikini. I was LDS. Yeah. So <laughs> we're in purity culture. Yeah. So a bathing suit and shorts um, out there cleaning this airplane. And so he started befriending Mo. Mm-hmm. And being interested in the church was a way in for him. So eventually Mo invited him over for dinner. And then it just went from there. So he'd come over for dinner. He'd come and hang out. He'd come over and play the piano. My mom just thought he was the thing. Uh-huh. Amazing. And you know, my mom was, you know, like I said, she was estranged. So she was estranged even with me living in the house. There's a lot of things that we didn't do as mother-daughters. Uh-huh. Like I've never had a mother-daughter relationship with, you know, not like you see other people. You know, and I, I see my friends and I'm like, I don't know what that's like. Like that must be, I don't know if that's amazing or strange. <laughs> but uh-huh. I think it would be, I think it's, I missed out on something amazing. Oh, you did, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So... Here, she's. I'd go over to these other women's house, and I think this is what saved me and helped me be a better mom. Is I was in other people's homes that I would be at for two, three weeks sometimes, just babysitting and cleaning their house and anything that I could do to make it, you know, make it so I could stay longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, extend it as long as possible with them. And I got experiences and exposure to other great mothers, right? Who helped mold me. And I think that was amazing. That just shows another way my mom was okay with me being over somewhere else. Yeah. Get rid of you for a couple of weeks. I was in trouble and I was going to church and doing, I, I had to that. do church activities because if I didn't, I couldn't do gymnastics or anything else. So yeah, the way to control you. When this guy came into the picture, he was 22 and I was 15-ish. I'm pretty sure I was about 15. Because before I left home, before the whole excommunication threats came from the church, so I had to be about 15, you know, maybe 14 or right after turning 15, somewhere in there. And 
he comes up to me one day and he says, would you like to go out for a cup of tea and a slice of pie? Mm. And the first thing that pops into my head is tea? Yeah, tea and pie. Tea. I'm Mormon. Oh, you don't drink tea. You offer tea? Right. <laughs> and I'm looking at my mom who's standing right behind him and she's got this big grin on her face and she's thinking, this is great. And I'm like, this guy's 22 years old. Yeah, this isn't right. And it's I'm inappropriate. Looking at, I'm looking at him. I'm like, I'm not, I didn't understand. I'm like, what is going on here? Tea? <laughs> yeah, very bizarre. I wanted to say, dude, I drink out. I, I drink vodka. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Give me something stronger. My mom is there, so I couldn't say that. So my mind is like spinning. What am I going to say? What yeah, say? yeah. The only thing I could say is, I listen to ACDC. I don't do tea. And I walked out of the house. And that, I think, is what saved me. That I rejected him in that moment is what saved me. Yeah, because he was on that path, for sure. Him that night. That would have been the first step. If I would have ever made it home again. Yep. Don't know. We don't know. So. Yeah, she's very fortunate there. Yeah, she told me, she's like, oh, he makes such a great son-in-law. Oh, my God. You're choosing him for me to marry? It was really weird. Yeah, that is beyond creepy. And she gets mad at me if I bring it up today because she's like, I can't believe you're still mad about Bounce. Like, you tried to marry me off to a 22-year-old creep. <laughs> yeah, that's not right at all. Nope. God, I cannot believe you survived these experiences. But I'm thinking, too, we've been a little bit around an hour. I'd love to hear more about your story. But I'm thinking, too, what is the name of your book again? Remind us and then talk about how people can find you. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best place to find you on social media? So I'm still in process of writing the book. The book is called Sealed to My Abductor. And I think that when I had that epiphany about, wow, this whole thing starts, the story really starts there. Even though it starts with the abduction, it really needs to start there because that's like the church was such a humongous element in all of this. And the fact that my abductor was able to have me sealed to him for all time and eternity. I mean, that's... That's crazy. I, I still I still think that's insane. And I don't go to church anymore, and I don't believe in the Mormon faith at all. So I'm a, I'm what they call an exmo, an ex yeah. And I know that all of that is not even true. And there's so many things that have been discovered in some of these other articles and whatnot. And I know it doesn't matter because if it's a it's it's all fake and false, anything. Mm, I, I it's a made up thing. The concept. Yeah, like, what he thought he was able to do. Yeah, there's something yeah. on paper that says I'm sealed to him, and I want that to dis- I want that to go away. Right. Here, if it's not true, I just want that paper burned. Yeah. So it bugs. It does bug me. Right. It still bothers you. Still well, it's like when my friend Chris Shelton. He's an ex Scientologist, but he was in the Sea Org. He signed a billion year contract. Wow. You know, so Chris has got you beat on that score. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Even though it is a made up thing, though, isn't it? It doesn't mean anything, but yet somehow that's still like a niggling little thing that's really. Just, drives you crazy, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm doing, I'm in the process of getting this book written. It's it's taking a while because I'm also writing another book on your digital life. You know, mm. to yourself, your family, and your kids, and, you know, kind of making that book at the same time or writing that book at the same time and launching my business officially next month. So there's a lot of things going on. But if people do want to reach out to me, they can find me on Facebook, um, Don McCarty. I have a Facebook group that parents can can join if they'd like to help them with tips and you know tricks on how to keep their kids safe online and that you can go to dons.club d-a-w-n-s dot c-l-u-b dons.club and they'll take you right to that facebook page so try to make it real easy 
And then my YouTube channel, I'll be adding more content there. And that is um, Don McCarty. So if you go to YouTube and just type in Don McCarty, it should bring that up. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me because I'm always right. on. So there's a number of ways to do it. Who is on mute. So <laughs> right. I was beeping in the background. Well, listen, Don, I'll let you go, but thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Best of luck finishing your two books. I know it's a lot of work to write even one book, but you got two on the go. So definitely keep in touch and let us know how you go. When you get the book done, maybe we can talk about that. Sure, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Take care. I'll speak to you again. Okay, bye-bye.